In the book of Jonah, chapter one, it says that Jonah rose up to flee uh, when the Lord said, arise to go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, uh, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down to it and went with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. It's an interesting thing that Jonah, uh, when God said go, Jonah said no. Uh, but the, the phrase here in Jonah chapter one says that when he chose to go against God's plan and purpose, um, it says he went out from the presence of God. Um, one of the things this seaport reminds me of is, is when God leads us in a direction and we choose to rebel against him, um, that we really are going out from the presence of God. God will allow us to do what we wanna do, but it's uh, not such a good plan to go against the Lord. Ask Jonah as he left this seaport in that ship he ends up in the belly of the whale and um, uh, ends up barfed up on another beach nearer to where he was supposed to be. So you can go the easy way or you can go the hard way. Jonah chose this port to be the hard, hard way. There it is, the little town of Joppa. Uh, it's a great place to visit. I've been there several times. And uh, Lord willing, we're gonna try to do a, a trip to Israel in uh, 2023, November. So be thinking about that. Maybe saving your pennies will uh, perhaps get over there to Joppa. Not sure, sometimes we make it, sometimes we don't. But it's a great little town that really does uh, remind me of what happened here in our text today. So why don't you grab your Bible, turn with me to Jonah chapter one, uh, as we continue studying through the book here. Jonah chapter one. We started this study on Wednesday night and we made it uh, to verse 16. Uh, and we, uh, we realized that the first part of this story is greatly about rebellion. Jonah's rebellion against the Lord. He, he goes against the Lord's way. Uh, in fact, the opposite direction. God wants him to go one way, Jonah goes the other. And uh, this idea of rebellion, well, if you think about it historically, Rebellion never works out. When you're rebelling against God historically, whether you're a person or a nation or a group of people, rebellion against God is not a good way to go. It's interesting because God lovingly wants us to come to his side and go his way. But when people really, really wanna do it, when they wanna defy God, as it turns out, God will let people do what they wanna do. Sad story, uh, in a book entitled Down to Earth, John Lawrence tells the story of a city that dared God to show himself and paid a terrible price for it. Um, it seems like the city of Messina, Sicily uh, was full of irreligious people, mostly atheists, and they were proud atheists. Much of the city was known for being the godless uh, Messina of Sicily. Uh, on December 25th, 1908, um, the newspaper published in Messina, they printed a, a parody against God, daring him to make himself known by sending an earthquake. And they were sort of, you know, shaking their little fists saying, you know, send an earthquake if you're really there. Um, three days later on December 28th, the city was surrounding district was devastated by a terrible earthquake that killed 84,000 people. 
Um, you can look it up. These are some pictures from Messina on that destruction. It's very sad when you think about, you know, the destruction, 84,000. And that's a conservative number, by the way. They're not 100% sure how many people really were killed there. And, and, and you know, it's interesting because, man, God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But the Lord says, if you really, really want to, if you wanna go to hell, if you wanna go in destruction, then just, just go the opposite direction of God. And, and that's a choice you and I have to make. Rebellion is one of those things that when you do it, it might even feel good for a moment that you're going against God, but the long-term, oh man, there's destruction there. There's an interesting scripture that has to do with this idea of free will. You and I doing whatever we wanna do. Um, as it turns out, God has made it so you can do whatever you wanna do. You can go after church and go find some drugs and you know, do meth or what you can do that, but is that, is that really a good plan? Well, that's, that's actually in rebellion against God. It's interesting, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, and he said this, all things are lawful to me, but all things are not expedient, or a better word maybe in modern language is profitable. Not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So yes, God gave you a free will and, and you can do whatever you want, but, but you say, um, well then why don't I, you know, why is the Bible full of the, thou shalt nots? Well, you have to understand, here's the Bible telling us what sin is. And sin, or the thou shalt nots, are things that God says, hey, listen, um, you can go with my plan or you can go with your plan. Your plan is not expedient or profitable. Your plan will bring you into the power of something evil and dark. But if you go with my plan, you'll, you'll actually be blessed. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul reiterates this uh, several chapters later when he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. So whether they bring you under the power of something like alcohol and drugs or pornography where people are stuck in their sins, addicted, um, that's not profitable and that's not good. This, when it says it doesn't edify, the word edification means to build up. So you can do whatever you want, but not everything you do is gonna actually build your life up. It'll actually tear your life down. Now this starts to get to one of the clumsy handlings we have historically of, of a single word in the Bible, and that's the word sin. Too many people think of sin totally wrongly. Um, and you can tell by people being offended when you say something like, like for example, this is, I'll just say something, that's, if you work at Intel, or if you work at Nike and you say homosexuality is a sin, man, they'll fire you. They'll fire you for saying that. How could you say someone's a sinner? But see, that just shows me nobody knows what the word sin means. Sin means to miss the mark. And everything that's not on the bullseye is called sin in the Bible. Um, that's the word sin, to miss the mark, to be off the bullseye. If you're in your backyard and you got a couple bales of hay and a, a, a target and you got your bow and arrow and you're shooting, man, you, you, the only thing that's not sin in the definition is when you hit that bullseye. If you're just barely outside, sin. If you hit the fence, sin. If you kill the neighbor's cat, sin. Uh, maybe not sin, that, that's actually a blessing. No, just kidding, sorry, you cat people, all the cat people in here. Hey, don't worry, there are cats in heaven. We know that because there's harps in heaven. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, off, off course here. Speaking of sin, to miss the mark. 
And, and, and see, that's the thing. When people get all offended, I can't believe you think I'm a sinner. Well, well, you don't even know how bad of a sinner I am. We're all sinners. That's what the Bible says. We all fall short. No one is righteous. Not even one person, the Bible says. And even the people that seek God, they're not really seeking after God. What do you mean, Brett? That's what Paul said. Um, have you ever been saying, well, I'm seeking after God? Well, here's what happens. The older I get, I realize that even when I'm seeking God, I'm sinning. Um, that's why Paul says, oh, I find no good thing within me. As a young man, Paul said, oh, we're all sinners. As a middle-aged man, Paul said, I'm a sinner. As an old man, Paul said, I, Paul, the apostle, am the chiefest of sinners. What happened? Was he getting worse as the years went by? No, he was realizing that almost everything is sin. Almost everything. Um, when you pray, do you ever pray selfishly, self-centered prayers? Lord, bless me. Help me to be victorious. Give me this. How many times did Jesus say in his prayer, the Lord's prayer, I, me, or my? Zip, zilch. Even my prayers are full of sin because they become self-centered or self-serving or sometimes even ugly. I wonder if the Lord, Jesus said, you know, or James tells us that some people, their prayers are, are not heard by God because they ask amiss. Uh, you're there, Lord, I pray for my boss at work. Um, please crush his school. Um, that's not in line with the Lord's plan for your boss. I guarantee it. And that would be classified as a sin, praying that way. So even your prayers or seeking God can become corrupted by sin. And so we shouldn't be shocked. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. That's the thing we have to remember. The word sin is not just something innately evil. No, the word sin means if you do it, it's not gonna be beneficial to you. It's not gonna help you. It's not gonna edify you, or it might even entrap you and make you stick to that problem. Um, that's why we need to understand the nature of sin, and, and that's the problem with rebellion. Rebellion is saying, I'm gonna go the opposite direction of what God actually wants for me to do. And it, you know, it's really interesting because the Bible makes it clear of how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to do, even how we're supposed to think. But the question is, how are you doing with this idea of just going with God's plan and purpose? Obedience or rebellion? It's really as simple as, do you wanna do this the easy way or the hard way? And when you say, yeah, whatever, I, I read in the Bible, you're not supposed to do this, or you're not supposed to do that, whatever, and so you press on. But the problem is the Bible, I found this to be right in my own life. So many of you have too. Good understanding, Proverbs 13, 15 says, gives favor. But the way of the transgressor or sinner is hard. You can sin it up, all things are lawful, but it's gonna be really hard for you. And you might become addicted, you might become messed up, you might find yourself in a terrible, terrible predicament because the Lord didn't design you to be uh, taking up sin. He told you, watch out for that stuff, go the other way. And that's the problem with Jonah. As we learned on Wednesday night, we'll start, you can jot some of these things down. Number one, we saw Jonah's rebellion against God. Um, and we saw that in verses one through three. Let's take a look at that just to review. Uh, Jonah chapter one, verse one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and cry against it for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
So it's the rebellion against God. God said, go, Jonah said, no. How far do you think you have to go to get away from God? Now you might laugh at that, but you know what Jonah does is he gives a pretty good, good, good shot at this. He, he gives it a try. Um, when we use these Bible names, you're like Tarshish and Nineveh, whatever. But if you look at a map, I find this map actually is kind of comical. Here's the map of Jonah. God said, go to Nineveh. So what did he do? Now, if you understand, we look at this map, some of you guys are like, yeah, what's that? Well, that's the Mediterranean Sea. You got Spain and Italy and you got, you know, Israel at Joppa there and North Africa and all this stuff. But you have to understand in Jonah's day, this was the known world. Anything outside of this map was kind of not, that was not even considered the world. This, this was the world in their mind at that time. And so what does Jonah do? He goes to the opposite end of the earth in his mind, all the way to Tarshish, which is near Gibraltar there uh, in Spain. Uh, that's where he's headed. Um, he wants to go 2,500 miles and they didn't have airplanes. They didn't have, you know, cars or, you know, they had some real rickety ships that might make it across the Mediterranean. So Jonah's bending over backward to go against God's plan and his rebellion against uh, God is obvious. And this raises a question. Now, um, you can rebel, by the way, both as a non-believer, unsaved, non-Christian person, just saying, I don't wanna go God's way. I don't wanna believe in God. Um, that's, that's the worst case scenario. But even as Christians, you and I can find ourselves going the opposite direction of where God wants us to be. And we can learn from Jonah. Um, are you in rebellion against God? That's a question you have to ask yourself right now. Uh, is there anything, maybe, maybe there's small things, maybe there's huge things. Maybe that boyfriend that you're kind of going out with right now is not a Christian um, and you're missionary dating, hoping that he gets saved. And oh, I'm sure if I get married to him, he'll eventually come to Christ and be saved. You're in rebellion against God. The Bible says, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever as the custom of some people is. Don't do that. Um, Maybe some of you have a job that you know God doesn't want you in that job. You know, maybe, maybe it's caused you to have to compromise your integrity, your honesty. Maybe your boss is deceitful and ripping people off, but, but you know it's, it's wrong and sinful, but you're afraid to, to leave that job because, well, you're afraid you won't be able to pay the bills or get another job. Could it be that you are in rebellion against God just because you refuse to get out of that situation? Or, or, or maybe some of you are in rebellion just by who you hang out with. Oh, I know that it's okay to hang out with sinners. Jesus did that. But remember when Jesus hung out with sinners, they all changed. Um, but are you a person, you know, Jesus was the hammer, they were the nail. Um, when you go hang out with your friends, are you the hammer or are you the nail? And, and, and are some of your friends leading you in things that are sinful and corrupt and, and leading you in a path of rebellion against God? Yeah, but Brett, I like hanging out with them. Yeah. But the Bible says that's still contrary to what God would have you to do. Um, what about maybe you're in rebellion against God, accepting worldviews that the world has pushed on you and say, well, I know the Bible says this, but I'm gonna believe the other. And there's a lot of things. We could talk of thousands of things that sadly the church is just ignoring in the Bible that the Bible says is evil and wrong, like abortion, for example, is a very clear, the reason why Christians are the, the ones that are mostly standing uh, against abortion is because the Bible talks about the, the child in the mother's womb and how God is forming a life and God considers that a person. And it's, and it, and it's murder, according to the Bible, to, to, to take that baby out in an abortive kind of way. There's a reason Christians kind of believe that, but you say, ah, whatever, a bunch of weirdo Christians. You're in rebellion 
against God. And, and the way of that, that path is gonna lead you to real trouble. And I could go on and on. What are the things that you've taken or paths that you've chosen that are in the opposite direction against God? And rebellion against God, well, the sad thing is once you have rebellion against God, Jonah finds this out. Then secondly, you have separation from God. When you're rebelling against God, don't be shocked. If you feel like your relationship with God is dried up or even non-existent. Did you see there in verse three, it said it twice. Jonah, when he left for Tarshish, he left from the presence of God. Jonah was in the presence of God, but when he rebels, he leaves the presence of God. And, and when the Bible says something twice, you kind of have to sit up and take note. It says in the first part of verse three, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And then at the end of that same verse, with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went from the presence of the Lord. By the way, when you're rebelling against God, I told you the way of the transgressor is hard and it will be, but initially it doesn't always go hard. Sometimes rebelling against the Lord is real easy at first. Um, what do you mean, Brett? Well, consider Jonah. Jonah says, I'm not going to Nineveh. So what does he do? He goes down to Joppa and lo and behold, he finds a ship. And it just so happens to be going the opposite direction. Yes. How much does it cost? Uh, cost this many shekels. He looks at his pot. I've got those shekels. Yes. Is there room for me? Yes. I mean, so far he's got a, a sweet situation. Um, keep in mind, um, we all Christians, we all pray, Lord, open doors that no man can shut. Shut doors that no man can open. And there's a truth in that. I get that. I understand that. And I've prayed the same thing. But at the same time, did you know that Satan opens doors in front of you too? Like the girl I was talking about that's dating the non-believer. Um, I've seen the rationality, but I love him. He's awesome and he's hot. He's much better looking than all those Christian Athey Creek boys. I've heard these arguments. Oh, and the door is open. Oh, he's, and, I, and he likes me and he listens to me and he hears me. Oh, Satan will open that door. Don't be shocked if that way is easy at first. I call it rubber band theology. God puts a loving rubber band around you because he loves you. And you say, I'm going the other way. And you start walking away. And at first it's easy, but the rubber band starts to get a little tighter as you start dating that guy. And before long, you realize maybe he's not as nice as he once. Is he ever gonna ask me to marry? Uh, oh man, he doesn't like Christmas and he doesn't like going to church. Oh man. And it gets harder and harder. And then pretty soon he's almost abusive. Have you seen these, these young girls that are with guys and they're abusing before they even get married? And you're like, how could this girl who's dating this guy keep going? It's this rubber band and it's gonna get harder and harder. The question is, how hard is the snapback gonna be? If you're still young and not married, the snapback's kinda like, back with the Lord, you're in good standing. If you get married and you go down and keep pushing against the rubber band, the snapback's gonna be way harder because it's gonna be stretched out a lot further. And I've seen, you've seen the snapback from that. There's people in this congregation right now that say, oh, listen to Pastor Brett when it comes to this marrying an unbelieving guy. Don't do it. Because a lot of you've been there and done that and it's a horribly painful situation. But that's the problem. The, the, the enemy will open the door. Charles Haddon Spurgeon talked about this um, and I like it. Picture this big fiery preacher. When Jonah went down to flee into Tarshish, he found a ship going there. What was not that remark, uh, he said, wasn't that a remarkable providence? Perhaps he said to himself, I felt some doubt about whether I was right in going to Tarshish, but when I got down to the seashore, there was a ship 
and there was just room for me to go on as a passenger. The fare was just the amount I possessed, so I felt that it must be from the Lord. Nonsense, Jonah. It is of the Lord that you do what is right. That's what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said about that. It's true, you can say, oh, what a coincidence. Everything's working out wonderfully, even though you're walking in rebellion against God. Jonah's now well on his way from the presence of the Lord, separation from God. Many scriptures talk about this, Isaiah 59 uh, verse two, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Colossians 1:21. and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. This gives us a sneak preview of hope for the person who's in rebellion, that the Lord says, oh, I want to redeem or reconcile you back but it's your sin that has alienated you from the Lord by your wicked works. The Bible's full of this type of discussion when it comes to our sins. And so the story goes on as we read on Wednesday night in verse four and onward. The Lord, you know, lets Jonah get on the boat, smooth sailing up until it wasn't. Somewhere in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, the Lord sent a huge storm. That's what the Bible says, the Lord sent it. And the storm started pounding this ship that was in the sea. Jonah was sawing logs under the deck. Does that remind you of someone else? Should we compare Jonah to Jesus? Um, the answer is yes. I'm gonna give you a sneak preview. Yes. Um, but when you compare Jesus sleeping under the deck of the ship uh, or the boat, um, what's the difference? Jonah was sleeping because he was a loser. Jesus was <laughs> sleeping under the ship because he was Lord. Uh, Jonah was sleeping on the ship because I don't think he cared about his life. We're gonna see that in a second. But Jesus had power over life and death. And when they woke Jesus up, he stood up and said, peace, and the storm was stilled. When they woke up Jonah, he stood up and everybody freaked out. Um, like that's the difference. We're gonna talk about Jonah and Jesus just for a second. We'll get back to that. But, but, but Jonah wakes up and they say, what, don't you care we're dying out here? And they, they're toiling and they throw all their stuff overboard because they wanna try to lighten the ship's load. But that doesn't help. And they start crying out to their gods. These are a bunch of pagan you know, mariners. Oh, gods, save us. But nobody was listening. So then they decided to do another kind of pagan practice. Let's cast lots and find out who's guilty. Who's the, the one guilty for this? Now this cracks me up because this is kind of a pagan practice of casting lots to find out who the guilty party is. But God says, okay, I'll use that. So they start casting lots and there's Jonah and the guys in the circle and the, the lot cast falls on Jonah. And they all look at Jonah, what have you done? And Jonah's like, okay, I'm guilty, I know. Well, what are we gonna do? And he said, okay, throw me overboard. And they're like, what? Yeah, throw me overboard, I'm the guilty party. So throw me overboard. This is where I kind of think Jonah would rather die than do what God asked him to do. He could have said, turn the ship around and let's go back and drop me off back at Joppa. But he doesn't say that. He said, just throw me overboard. Um, interesting. Well, the men don't even do it. They say, yeah, whatever, uh, we're not gonna do that. So they toil for more hours trying to save the ship, but eventually it gets so bad and the ship gets so pounded that finally like, sorry, no, sorry, Jonah, we gotta throw you over, dude. And they throw him over. And there he is being tossed in the ocean um, and thinking, well, this is it, I'm going down. And that's where we left it off on Wednesday night. We saw number one, the rebellion against God. We saw the separation from God, um, but now we see the preparation of God. 
And we see that in one of the most fascinating verses in all the Bible, I think. This is a loaded verse, verse 17 of chapter one. We didn't read this verse on Wednesday, saved it for today. It says in verse 17, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What a short little verse, but boy, there's a lot to process there. First of all, the Lord prepared a fish. Now, when you and I prepare fish, that's on a stove with um, you know, some, some good uh, seasoning and stuff like that. But, but the Lord prepares a fish to do business with Jonah, uh, to swallow him up for three days and three nights. This is an amazing miracle of God. Now, some of you are hung up on this, uh, how did a fish swallow a man? Is that where we are with you? I mean, I mean, it's always funny to me that, and, and I know some of you were told by your cardigan, you know, sweater, pipe puffing college professors, well, we know that this is just a mytho-historical story that never really happened. There's no way a whale could have swallowed a man, you know, biologically or scientifically. We know this stuff. So this is just a fake story that this, well, you can hear that whether you're at Berkeley, Berserkley, or, um, or even Christian universities, these same college professors, some of them are trying to diminish the truth of the Bible. Um, I, I always marvel when people refuse to believe things that are slightly miraculous. This is kind of a miraculous thing. I'll admit, a big fish. Um, now, I, I love studying fish and the ocean. Um, when I was a kid, one of my favorite Sunday night shows, uh, it was right after Disney, um, was Jacques Cousteau, The Amazing Adventures of Jacques Cousteau. Did you guys love that stuff? He was a scuba diver. He was the one who invented scuba diving. Like he was an amazing uh, you know, French guy that was an oceanographer and just the whole world. So you know, as, as soon as I could, I got certified in diving and, and loved, loved seeing a whole other world under the ocean. But there's so much we don't know about the ocean. For any stupid college professor to say, well, we know that there's no fish that can swallow a man. That just shows me you don't know what you're talking about. Because there's so much about fish that we don't still know. If, if you go to the deep sea, uh, deepest parts of the, like Mariana's Trench, seven miles deep. We've only been down there with these little tiny subs that are so um, thick with metal because they, you know, otherwise they'd be crushed like a little tin can with the, the, the pressure. But um, we've only been down and we've only seen a little bit of what's down there. There's still a lot of creatures that they believe we've never even seen down there yet. Um, if you ever, I was gonna bring a bunch of my favorite pictures of some of these deep sea fish that are down in like Mariana's Trench, but I didn't want y'all to have nightmares after church. Because like seriously, some of the scariest looking creatures on the planet are down in the depths of the ocean. Uh, crazy. Look it up if you're interested. Look up the scariest creatures of the ocean and you'll be shocked at what God created. But, um, but all that to say, we, you know, a lot of people have no idea what's under there. Well, let's talk about what we do know. We do know the sperm whale can be 63 feet long or 62 feet long. The sperm whale, that's an actual size of an elephant and a person and a sperm whale. Do you think that the sperm whale could swallow that little swimmer there? Um, well, as it turns out, the answer is yes. The sperm whale, its stomach is seven feet by 14 feet by six feet. Um, an average size sperm whale stomach. Um, and as it turns out, uh, in his book, 63 Years of Engineering, Sir Francis Fox, tells of a story of a whaling station that um, had a sperm whale that they had uh, uh, collected. And they, they, they did some measurements. The sperm whale can swallow clumps and lumps of food eight feet in diameter. One of the whales they found actually had a complete shark, a full skeleton of a shark. It hadn't even been crunched up. Uh, that was 16 feet in length. That's like a huge shark that was swallowed by a sperm whale. 
And that's been documented. Uh, so those that try to say a whale could not swallow a man or would not swallow a man. Well, um, I'm gonna show you how that's not true. But before I get to that, um, another one I've wanted to see is uh, the whale shark. By the way, this is the actual size. Um, we did some math on our screen size. Not This one just shows the eyeball, but uh, this screen. But this screen shows that's the real size. If you were swimming in the ocean, that's how big a sperm whale would be as you came up next to him, which is pretty good size. Um, but all that to say, um, uh, I've always wanted to see a whale shark. Uh, scuba diving, that's one of the things that sometimes uh, scuba divers get to bump into these whale sharks. Austin, have you ever bumped into a whale shark? Not yet. Yeah, the, um, uh, I'll tell you, uh, that's gotta be amazing. It, and kind of a prehistoric looking creature, the whale shark. It's about the size of a school bus and it's a, it's a shark, but it's not the kind of shark that will chomp you down or eat you uh, as much. Uh, they actually move and act more like a whale, which is uh, why they're called a whale shark. But, um, but that's an interesting creature if you ask me. What about prehistoric creatures? Now again, the evolutionary theory, billions and billions of years, millions and all this stuff. I believe evolution is a far-fetched fantasy. And I know that some of you are like, well, Brett, you're stupid. Uh, I think it's crazy to say that out of nothing, suddenly came great complexity. And the reason they need billions of years is because most people would say not in a billion years uh, to go from goo to you. Uh, and, and when you look at God's creation, it's, it's just so far-fetched, the evolutionary theory. I believe God created the heavens and the earth and the earth is much younger than everybody thinks it is. But one of the things about that is you look at some of these so-called prehistoric, have you ever heard of the uh, Dunkleosteus? Uh, the dun uh, this is a uh, prehistoric fish. They found this in fossils. And this was a huge fish, fish also the size of a school bus. And interesting, doesn't have any teeth. He's got two shovel kind of things on the front of its beak. Um, what's really scary about this one is they've done sort of the math on the musculature of this jaw of this fish. And they said it could concentrate a force of up to 8,000 pounds per square inch at the tip of its mouth, crushing pretty much anything that came in its path. Um, effectively placing the Dunkleosteus uh, in the league of the Tyrannosaurus Rex and modern crocodiles is having the most powerful known bite. Um, but all that to say, you know, I believe dinosaurs were around during the time of men. Uh, if you read the Bible, that's what you can actually see. Um, maybe there was a fish like this. By the way, some people believe this fish might even still be existing somewhere in the deepest parts of the ocean. God forbid, I, if I'm scuba diving and see this one, I'm, I'm out of there. Uh, by the way, what is the, this is the actual size right there of this one. If you were swimming along in the ocean, that's how big <laughs> he would look. Um, now, Brad, that's all fine and dandy. I don't know. Uh, I just don't know if I believe it. Oh, did you see a couple years ago? This was great. Did you see a couple years ago uh, in uh, Cape Cod, I was completely inside lobster diver swallowed by humpback whale off of uh, Provincetown. Um, when I first saw this, I thought, oh no, another one of these goofy stories that's probably not true because there's a lot of them that aren't true that people try to say about whales and humans and stuff. Well, as it turned out, this really happened. Uh, 60 Minutes did a whole uh, episode on this and it was kind of fascinating. Let me show you the trailer. This is kind of funny. Uh, you got to see it. I just got hit out of nowhere. Just got boom. The most incredible tale. And then everything went dark. Where am I? We've ever told. And I'm getting shivers right now. 
Yeah, I was convinced. I was dead. On 60 Minutes. Your son got taken by a whale. I'm not surprised. How this lobster died. <laughs> I think it was his jaws on my legs. Was swallowed by a humpback whale. I'm traveling through the water like fast. And then escaped. Spit out. <laughs> he wasn't tasty. How do you feel towards the humpback? He was probably more freaked out than I was. And no, there's nothing fishy about it. I just saw the slashing of white water. It really happened. It's one of the greatest stories I have ever heard in my life. It's, a, uh, it's an interesting episode, but um, all that to say, uh, the reason they know it actually happened is because the guys, he was down there looking for lobster as a diver. Um, the, the whale got him and swallowed him down. And then the whale felt something wrong with it. It wasn't like all the other fish. It had scuba tanks and stuff. I'm sure he's like, oh, man, I gotta get some like, where's the Rolades or whatever, Tums. Um, but the, um, the, the guys on the surface, they're all just kind of doing their thing on their boat and all of a sudden this massive humpback whale starts thrashing at the top of the surface. And they're like, what's going on? And they're thinking, oh no, I hope our buddy down below is okay. And right about then they saw the whale you know, breach out of the water and spit, the, they literally saw their buddy fly through the air, arms and legs flailing <laughs> as it spit him out. That's how they know he was in the mouth of this whale. Um, and it really happened. Like it's, a, it's an amazing story. You can check it out if you want to. 60 Minutes did a, a thing on it. But, but all that to say, um, you know, so for all of you that are cynical or critical, uh, even if you don't want to believe that it was a miracle, God made a big giant fish. And I always say, he could have made a rainbow trout the size of this room and just swallowed Jonah. I, I don't care. It is, God can do whatever he wants to. But, um, but even so, it's amazing. There's actually stories that are similar to the Jonah story. But it makes me wonder, God prepared a fish. That's what the Bible says, um, the preparation of God. And it makes me wonder, what is God preparing for me to correct me, to get me going on the right direction? God prepared a fish. Um, now, um, I wonder what it is that the vehicle that God's gonna use. In fact, that's the question you might wanna ask yourself. What is the vehicle the Lord will use to bring you back? For Jonah, it was preparing a fish. For some of you, it might be you getting fired. Maybe for some of you, it might be you getting dumped by your girlfriend or boyfriend. Others, you might be getting caught. Sometimes the Lord will use a vehicle of you going into rehab. Or sometimes the Lord will use uh, any number of things that you might say, well, that's horrible, that's a bad thing. Well, do you think Jonah thought, oh, I've been swallowed by a big fish. Uh, that's a problem. We'll see that in a second. He, he does think it's a problem. Um, but some of the problems that come your way, if you're walking in rebellion as a Christian or as a non-believer and you're wondering why, are everything, why is everything going so horribly, could it be the Lord is using those things as a vehicle to bring you where you actually need to be? Uh, some of you know how this works out. Long-term you see, I got fired and I was so upset, but the Lord had a totally different job for you that was gonna be better to begin with. I got dumped, I'm so mad at the Lord, I loved him. But then you realize he was a total loser. And then the Lord brought you the right person and you realize, oh, thank you, Lord, for that guy dumping me. What is the vehicle God is using to bring you back where you need to be? And, and that's that rubber band question. How far are you gonna go before the snapback? What is the Lord using? And that brings us to the fourth kind of consideration. You got you know, rebellion against God. You've got the separation from God because of your rebellion. And then you've got you know, um, 
the preparation of the Lord as he prepares whatever it is that's gonna bring you back. And then that brings us to the correction from God. And that's what we're gonna see in the next verses in chapter two. Let's take a look, chapter two, verse one. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord, his God, out of the fish's belly. That's an interesting place to pray. Um, You can pray in the storm or you can pray in the sanctuary, it's your choice. But he prays from the fish's belly and um, and said, I cried by reason of my affliction out of the, uh, unto the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of, the, of hell. I cried, and thou heardest my voice. Mark the word hell there. Um, and your Bible, many of your Bibles have a marginal reference there. Uh, and it's, it's the grave. Death, hell, the grave. There's um, some words in the original language that kind of lead us to this idea of uh, the death and hell and the grave. Hades, and Sheol, death in the grave. That's what Jonah's basically, it's like, I'm in hell. But it's not just general hell, it's the grave, I'm dead, and it's also Hades. That comes into play, don't forget that, that's gonna be part of our study as we get further. So he says, oh man, the Lord heard me out of the belly of hell, cried I, and thou heard my voice. Four, verse three, thou hast uh, cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul, and the depth closed round about me, and the weeds were wrapped around my head. Do you get a little claustrophobic reading this? He's in the belly of a well. Not only that, he's got seaweed wrapped all around his head. And he's talking about how the waves and everything closed in upon him. Like this is starting to make me feel claustrophobic. Um, And then he says, I went down, verse six, to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Again, we're talking about Hades and Sheol here. Um, Yet thou hast brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God, or the pit. You brought me out of the pit. Interesting, what are we seeing here? This is the correction from God. God is using this situation to correct his thinking. God wants Jonah sort of to digest the situation that's going on in his life. Uh, Pardon the pun. I wonder if Jonah thought, man, I've gone too far. This is it, I'm dead, this is it. Um, You know, but but God would give Jonah almost like a little taste of hell. Um, I think it'd be like hell. How much is it like hell? Well, um, was it hot? Do you ever wonder, was it hot in the belly of the whale? I think, yes, science tells us the, a typical whale's belly is 98.6 degrees at any given time. And I bet that's humid. <laughs> uh, and do you think there's some old salmon in there uh, that's been rotten for a few years? You know, maybe a little digestive tract problems. Like, like it had to stink. Don't you think it stink? Question, is hell gonna stink? Bible says yes. Uh, It's uh, book of Revelation chapter 21, verse eight. At the end of that verse, the Bible says their place will be in a fiery lake of burning sulfur is the idea there, burning sulfur. When I was in junior high, I had a great teacher who loved to do experiments. We blew stuff up, lit things on fire. Like it was a great teacher. We had a lot of fun. But every year he would do one of his favorite things was to teach us and show us what what happens when you light sulfur on fire. Did any of you guys do that in school, light sulfur? Yeah, some of you guys did that. It's the worst smell you'll ever smell. I remember the whole class just like, like it smells so bad, everybody wanted to barf, you know? It's just a horrible smell. Um, But that's what the Bible talks about hell. Uh, If hell's not bad enough, uh, that sulfur smell is gonna be bad. 
But here Jonah thinks he's in hell. He thinks it's over, but he even thinks the Lord has cast him out of his sight. Did you see that in verse four? In verse four, then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. Um, By the way, that's what Jonah felt, but I don't think that was actually true. Poor Jonah, you know, the mariners cast him out of the ship, but God did not cast him out. Um, God had his hand on Jonah and Jonah was not out of the sight of God, even though he was in the belly of the well or the big fish, whatever it was. God still had his sights on him. I love what John chapter six, Jesus said in John chapter six, verse 37, all that the father giveth me shall come to me and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So Jonah says, oh, the Lord has cast me out. Not really. The Lord was actually taking him up and getting him going in the right direction. That's what the Lord does to people he loves. And so this is the correction of Jonah. Um, God's using this whale to correct his path and to get him going, which then um, brings him to an interesting point, number five on our list of considerations, the desperation of Jonah. So it's bad enough that he's in this whale and he said, I'm in hell and seaweed wrapped around my head, but now how desperate is he? And the question is, before we read this, how desperate will you be before you finally say, okay, Lord, I repent and I wanna go your way and go with your word and your truth? How far will you go? Well, Jonah takes it to the very end. Check it out. You can tell when he says, verse seven, he says, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. Now pause for a second. Um, Many of you have gone to a point uh, where your body has fainted within you. Um, Have you ever worked out so hard or uh, exerted so much energy where you literally run out of fuel? and you literally can't move. I've done that a few times in my life where you know I was just trying so hard and working so hard physically, you just, you're done. Like I can't move, I can't go. Um, but what about your soul? That's your mind and your emotions. Man, when you get to that point where you're saying my soul is done, that's when you know you've reached the end. But Jonah's like, man, I've got nothing left. My soul faints. And then he says, but then I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came in unto thee, into thy holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. In other words, there's people that just say, yeah, whatever, we're not gonna repent. And so we're not gonna see mercy. Um, But Jonah says, that's not me. But I, verse nine, will sacrifice unto thee, which means he's acknowledging his sin um, with the voice of thanksgiving, and I will pay that which I have vowed. And then he says, salvation is of the Lord. This is where Jonah's desperation brings him to the beautiful place where you and I need to be, a place of repentance and confession. That's what we all need. Whether you're micro-rebelling, just some small little thing in your life that's just, you've chosen to rebel against the Lord, or if it's huge and you've rejected God altogether and you've never accepted Christ and you're an unbeliever, unsaved, and you're in rebellion, the answer is confession and repentance. Um, And it's often when your soul is ready to faint, that's when you say, okay. By the way, um, how does that look? What does it look for a person to change gears and say, okay, Lord, I'm done. My soul has reached its end. Um, Well, for some people, it's suicide. That's the sad truth. Some people just say, I can't take it anymore. For some people, it's drinking and drugs. For some people, it's, you know, going to, you know, just trying to just mess yourself up even worse. But for some people, they come to a place where they realize none of this has worked out very well for me. I'm gonna do a 180 degree turn and go back to God. That's what Jonah does. Can I recommend that over everything else? 
All the other stuff is just the devil lying to us and telling us, oh yeah, this will be better. But man, until you confess and repent, you know who's the, who's the picture book of this? Jonah is a good example, I think, but, but maybe better still was David himself in the, in the Psalms. Um, would you keep your finger here in uh, Jonah and turn with me to Psalm 51. I wanna show you a powerful example of what this should look like. Um, in Psalm chapter 51, the superscription at the beginning of the Psalm says, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to David after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Remember, this is where David committed adultery with a beautiful woman in Jerusalem while her husband was off fighting in warfare. And then when he got busted and she got pregnant, he murders the man, the husband, and covers up his sin. Well, Nathan the prophet comes in and calls him out, says, you're, you're a sinner, David. And David is broken at this time. But what, what does he do? Does he mope? Does he try to kill Nathan? Does he try to kill himself? No. David does the right thing and he confesses and repents of his sin. And Psalm 51 is the record of that. Check it out. It says in verse one of chapter 51 of Psalms, David says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before thee. This is the way you do it. You just do the same thing, David. Oh Lord, would you please have mercy on me? I've sinned against you in so many ways. And you know all my sins. You understand all my stuff that I've done. And so I acknowledge my sins before you. That's repentance, by the way, to just say, Lord, I'm acknowledging I'm wrong and my sin is before you and you see it. And so repentance and confession. David does this right here. Fast forward to verse 10. I love this prayer. In verse 10, he says, oh Lord, he says, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Notice the language here, verse 11, cast me not away from thy presence. Does that line up with Jonah? As when he sinned, he was going out from the presence of the Lord. David had the same thing. When you sin, you feel distanced from God. And so David says, oh Lord, created me a clean heart, renew a right spirit, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. And it says, um, take not your Holy Spirit from, from me. And then I love it, verse 12, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. This is the way to do it, folks. When you repent of your sins and acknowledge your sins and say, Lord, have mercy upon me and forgive me for my sins, the Lord will forgive you. And then pray for restoration. Oh Lord, cast me not away. Renew a right spirit. Clean my heart, oh Lord. This is the way you do it. I love verse 17. I'm just hopping through this chapter. You can meditate, pray through, read this whole chapter. It's powerful. But verse 17, the, sacrifice, uh, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, oh God, thou will not despise. Jonah had reached that place of brokenness. And that's why he ends up, you know, in his place of desperation. He, he, he's broken to that point of desperation. His soul is fainted. And so finally he just says, oh Lord, have mercy on me. And he's broken and repentant. That's what's required of you and me. Just like David, just like Jonah. And when that happens, then did you see the end of verse um, 
I love, I mean, going back to Jonah, I love the end of verse nine. It says, I will pay that I vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And that brings us to our final point. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah's salvation was only gonna come from the Lord. No one else could save Jonah. He was at a place where there was no other alternative. Um, and then let's finish this chapter. Verse 10 is hilarious. And the Lord spake unto the fish. Do you speak fish? God does. Like, what is this like? I, I, like, I, I wanna get the video of this and understand, like, did the Lord say, Mr. Fish? He's like, yeah. Um, it's like, mm, I got a little indigestion, yeah. Would you go and barf out on the beach and make sure Jonah's out there? Like, okay. Like, what did the Lord say? Or how does that work? I don't know, but the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited out Jonah upon dry land. <laughs> now, now this, this is where I probably think too much, too much detail, but what did Jonah look like at this point? I mean, he's half digested. Um, the gastric juices in this big fish had to do a number. In fact, there's people that have actually measured what would have happened to a guy who had been in a, a, a big fish's belly for three days and three nights. The first thing is the clothes would have just deteriorated right off his body. So he was probably naked at this point and his skin would have been bleached white because of the bleaching nature of the, of the gastric juices. And maybe even his hair gone, his beard and his hair because of the way this, the, the, the hair follicles would react to the juices in the stomach. Um, so maybe a bald naked guy that's as white as snow <laughs> with a bunch of seaweed wrapped around his head. Can you imagine you're just sitting on the beach all of a sudden this whale, and this guy, and he gets up stark naked looking like Casper the Friendly Ghost. With see, no wonder the men of Nineveh said, okay, we'll repent. Like we're, ah! like, like Jonah must've been a scary dude uh, at this point. I don't know. Uh, we don't know for sure, but I, that's where my mind goes with all these things. So salvation belongs to the Lord, as the Bible says. You know, soon as Jonah was swallowed by the big fish, he starts going in the right direction. This, this fish just starts swimming back. I love that. Um, this story is a beautiful picture of something more than just a repentant rebeller. That's, that's a beautiful thing, how the Lord takes a guy in his rebellion and turns him around and gets him going back on track. I love that part of the story. But did you know there's even a greater truth in this story? This story is a picture of Jesus Christ. Oh, Brett, this is where you always take these Old Testament stories and try to bring Jesus into the Old Testament stories. And, and I say to that, absolutely right. Um, guilty as charged, and that's what I do because the Bible says, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. Jesus is written in all the pages of the Old Testament. These churches that don't read the Old Testament, in poverty they are for not seeing these beautiful pictures of important truths. Well, Brad, how does the story of Jonah and the whale fit with Jesus? It speaks of Jesus, what happened after he died on the cross, was in the tomb for three days, and then rose from the grave. Brad, how do, you, how do you make that? Well, this is the good thing. It's not me making this up. This is Jesus who said that. So if you've got a problem with what I'm saying, you've got a problem with Jesus. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 12? We're almost done. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Um, now the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were very critical of Jesus, they're wanting to see more signs and wonders from Jesus. He'd already healed people and raised people from the dead and done miracles, but do miracles ever really bring about real faith? The answer is no. That's why Jesus responds like he does here when these guys come up. Check it out, Matthew 12, 38. It says, then 
Certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But Jesus answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Who's the greater than Jonah in this story? Jesus. Why is Jesus greater than Jonah? Well, that's ridiculous. Uh, I don't even need to cover that, but let me talk about a few things. Um, first of all, Jonah was preaching judgment and wrath and he really wanted that upon Nineveh. But the Ninevites repented. Jesus came preaching kindness and grace. People marveled at his gracious words. That's why Jesus was better than Jonah. Jonah was disobedient. Jesus said, I always do the will of my father. Jonah was preaching to one city. Jesus was gonna change the whole world. I could go on and on about how Jesus, when Jesus said, there's one here that's greater than Jonah. Now the religious dudes of that day, they almost, you know, sainthooded Jonah by that time. What, who's better than Jonah? And the reason they thought Jonah was so cool is because he preached like eight words and the whole city of Nineveh, this evil, horrible city all repented and got saved. So like, yeah, Jonah's kind of like, um, you know, the, the Brady of, uh, of Bible prophets. Um, they, eight words and he just, the whole city changed. But Jesus says, but a greater than Jonah is here. And he even makes a correlation. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What's that all about? Well, this is where a lot of Christians haven't really done their homework in the Bible. I'm actually kind of always shocked when I bring this up. People look at me like, Brett, you're making this stuff up. But this is what happens if you actually follow through the way things go out. Let's, let's back up, a little quiz time for you. When Jesus died on the cross next to the thief, and remember the thief that believed in Jesus? Does anybody remember? What, what did Jesus say to the thief when he started believing? Good, today you'll be with me in paradise. Is paradise heaven? No, it's not. Now this is where some of you are like, wait a minute, bro, what are you talking about? Paradise is not heaven. Paradise is half of a place. What do you mean half a place? Do you remember Abraham's bosom? In the Bible, there's a place called Abraham's bosom. Uh, and it's a place that has two sides. Luke chapter 16 kind of gives us the picture of this. Remember the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man goes to Hades and Sheol. That's the bad side of Abraham's bosom. And the, the poor guy, the, the beggar, he ends up in paradise. And there's a whole parable about that. And there's this great gulf between the two. And remember the guy in the torment side? He says, oh, just a drop of water on my tongue for I am in torment. And he goes and says, at least go and tell my brothers of this place so they don't go here. He was in a place called Hades and Sheol. Another idiom of that in the Bible is the center of the earth. Now, is it literally in the center of the earth? I don't know, I've never been there. But there is a place, according to the Bible, called Abraham's bosom. Half of it's good, half of it's bad. Um, well, good side's paradise, bad side's Hades, Sheol, um, sometimes referred to as hell, but probably not super accurately called hell. But Hades and Sheol is probably the best. Death and hell is what it's called. Now you say, okay, Brett, that's great, whatever. Okay, we already established, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, which means Jesus went to paradise with this guy on the cross, which means Jesus went to 
Abraham's bosom and he went to, now, now I gotta correct some things. Have you ever heard like the prosperity gospels uh, teachers like Kenneth Copeland and some of these guys, Jesus died on the cross and he burned in hell and he loves to say that. Jesus burned in hell for you. Um, that didn't happen. That's just a wacko guy who gets paid too much. Um, what's the truth? Jesus did, remember what Paul said, Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, what did he do first? He descended where? In the lower parts of the earth. This is what we're talking about. Jesus took the thief on the cross down to paradise with him. Now we're gonna go deep into theology. What did Jesus do when he was there? What's the first thing he did? Okay, you're getting ahead of me. That's true, um, but we're not there yet. Um, what's the first thing he did when he got there? He was preaching to demons, yes. Wow, uh, that's good. Now, why would you preach to demons? Well, it wasn't really preaching for their salvation. He was preaching against the demons of the hell side of death and hell. Are you guys with me still? The Bible says that. He first ascended, before he ascended, he descended. And the first thing he did was preach. And there's, there's more detail here. I'm just giving you the fast version. What's the, the next big thing that he did that's really important? He then did, yes, one person said it, you said it earlier. Uh, he led captivity captive. That's the King James way of saying he took all the people that were in the paradise side. Now, who's that? All the believers of the Old Testament, Abraham and anybody who was a believer before Jesus died on the cross, they were in sort of that paradise side, which was a good place, but he took them out of that place and brought them to heaven at that point. Now, this is confusing to people. If you would, Abraham's bosom, the, the paradise side has now been retired. It's been shut, closed for business. The paradise side doesn't seem to have a purpose anymore uh, in the world's history or future. Because when you die today, you'll be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We get, when you die today, you don't go to paradise, you go to heaven. That's what the Bible teaches. That's, that's some good news. If you die today as a non-believer, where do you go today? Same place. The bad side of Abraham's bosom, Hades or Sheol, death and hell as the Bible calls it. The same language Jonah used, by the way, when he said, I am in death and hell, uh, when I'm in the belly of the well. That's the, the language Jonah was using. So those, that's where those people are now. Will that be the place that those people are for all eternity? The answer is no. Now be careful on this one. I do not agree with these guys. They say, oh, nobody's gonna stay in hell. Everybody gets out, love wins. And people are writing all these books about that. Um, that's just people not reading their Bibles. What does in fact happen to the people that are in Hades or Sheol, death and hell? Does anybody know when will they be taken up out of there? In fact, this is really weird. The Bible says there will be a resurrection of the dead. There's two resurrections. There's a resurrection unto life and there's a resurrection unto death. And that's in Revelation chapter 20. What is this? When, pray, will the people in Hades and Sheol be taken up out of there? Does anybody know? The great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. The millennial period of the kingdom, uh, there's the rapture of the church, in my opinion, the seven year tribulation period. Then you got the millennial kingdom, a thousand years where Christ rules and reigns on the earth. At the end of that time, Read Revelation 20, it says, all of death and hell, Hades and Sheol, will be taken up to the great white throne judgment, where all people who rejected Christ and will not be saved will stand before God and be judged for their sins. And at that point, there's no turning back. Now, there's no turning back once a person's in Hades or Sheol too. 
Um, but when you stand before the judgment uh, there, the great white throne, it says that at that time, Revelation 20, Satan and all his demons will be thrown into. Now this is where we get confused. The word, the Greek word is Gehenna. But that's the more traditional hell that we all kind of think about. When we think of a lake of fire and eternal darkness and smell of sulfur and all the horrible stuff of hell, that's the hell, that's the eternal hell that everybody who's rejected Christ, including Satan and all his fallen angels and demons, they'll all be thrown into Gehenna. That's, that's the long lasting hell. And after the great white throne, it says, not only will Satan and his demons, but all of death and hell, all of Hades and Sheol will be thrown into that final place called Gehenna. Well, Brett, I like to think hell doesn't exist. You could like to think that I'm in great shape. <laughs> Just because you like to think it doesn't make it so. Uh, be careful on that. I, it's so amazing, the relativism kind of thing where people just say, well, I like to think that hell doesn't exist. Um, you could be like the little three-year-old, you can't see me. Um, that's the way I look at that. Um, the Bible talks more, Jesus talked more about hell than he talked about heaven. It's a real place. Well, Brett, now you're scared. Are you a fire and brimstone preacher? I am today. Um, because I... Like the Lord, I have to agree with the Lord. He, the Bible says, oh, the Lord would that no one would perish, that no one would go to hell. Well, if God is love, he won't send people to hell. Exactly. But God doesn't force you to go his way. You can rebel against him, but you're on your way to hell and destruction. And that's why you gotta repent of your sins. That's, if you're not a believer in Christ, it's time to really reevaluate because the Bible makes us really clear of what's gonna happen that those who reject Christ are gonna be in real trouble. And, and you don't have to do that, why? Because when Jesus came, the, the Jesus who is God, Emmanuel, God with us, came and died on the cross for our sins, Jesus said, I'll take your pen penalty and instead of you going to hell, I will die on a cross with nails in my hand and feet. Even though I'm perfectly innocent, I will take the sins of the whole world upon myself. God took the sins of the world upon himself that anyone who would be, want to be saved, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You'll be part of that second resurrection. One's resurrection unto death and hell. The other one's a resurrection to life and eternity in heaven with the Lord. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. But anyone who wants it can have it. Nobody's going to be able to say, well, that wasn't fair that God sent me to hell. Nobody will say that because... God has given all of us a chance to repent, change our mind, go God's way. It's really a decision God leaves in your court. What are you gonna do? And some of you have tried it without God and you wonder why your life is not, you might even have everything going on. You might be wealthy and healthy and seemingly wise, but you're still unhappy. Man, because you're still in your sins. Um, you gotta repent, you gotta Psalm 51, Lord, forgive me. Be merciful to me and forgive me of my sins. And the Lord, he's amazingly merciful. His mercy endures for how long? Forever. And his grace is sufficient for you, the Bible says. And anyone, this is the great thing. It's not even hard. Like it should be hard if you ask me. I would have made it hard on y'all. Oh, you wanna become a Christian? Well, first thing you gotta do is be able to bench press 500 pounds. Only a few of us might make it to heaven there. Good luck with that. And then you gotta run 10 laps around the shirt. Never mind, I don't want that one because I might not be able to do that one. Uh, no, uh, make, make it hard. No, but the Lord says, I did all the hard work. That's why Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. 
And so all you got to do, according to Romans 10, 9 and 10, is if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, that God raised him up from the dead, it says you will be saved. Jesus did what Jonah did in that sense. He died on the cross, was buried, descended, led captivity captive, and then he ascended into heaven. And then he says, anyone who will receive the work of the cross will be saved. So anyone who will confess with their mouth, believe in the cross, and believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, it says, you will be saved. It's the gift of God, eternal life. Don't miss that chance. That's the prayer of today. So if you're in a micro rebellion as a Christian, turn 180 degrees, confess, and the Lord will get you back on track. But if you're in a huge rebellion saying, I haven't believed in God, I haven't accepted Christ, I'm still in my sins, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait, be saved. Um, I'll make it easy for you today. We can confess Christ right here, right now, if you want to be saved. Would you bow your heads, please, as we close this service? And Christians, would you be in prayer? Because I wonder if there might be a few who would say, yes, I need to repent of my sins. Just because you may have gone to church or owned a Bible or said happy thoughts or whatever, that doesn't mean you're saved. Um, the saved person is a person who repents and confesses and says, Lord, I'm a sinner. I acknowledge my sins before you and I receive the gift of forgiveness from the cross. And by that confession with the mouth and the belief in the heart, the Bible says you'll be saved. So if that's you and you want that, I'd like to pray that prayer of confession of faith right here, right now. I won't sign you up for anything. I won't make you do anything weird. Uh, but right where you're sitting, if that's you, would you acknowledge that? Um, with everybody else's heads bowed, would you acknowledge between you, me, and the Lord right now, saying, Pastor Brett, I, I know I need that. I want that, and I'm gonna pray that prayer. Would you acknowledge that right now? Just by raising your hand, and I'll just acknowledge you as you express that. Cool, I see you guys over there, good. Let me just look around back through here, yep. Awesome, good, good, right here, good. And you, and you, good, good, awesome. Anybody else? Don't, don't let me miss you. I wanna make sure I catch all of you. That's great. I'm gonna pray this prayer of confession of faith and I'm gonna ask the church, let's just pray this out loud. It gets so fun to get behind this group of people that's saying, man, we wanna repent and be saved. So as we pray this, we're gonna pray this out loud, but those of you that raised your hand, the Lord hears your heart and he knows that your, your attitude as you're praying this. So know that he is the one who will hear and save. And let's just do this together. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus Christ, that he came and died on the cross for my sins, that he rose up from the grave, and that I'm forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Lord, I pray blessing upon these who've just confessed faith. Lord, would you wrap your loving arms around them? May they know the reality of your forgiveness and your mercy. Just lift their spirits with joy, Lord, because man, what an amazing thing for you to lift the burden of sin off of our shoulders, Lord. We didn't deserve that, but you're gracious and merciful. We applaud you, Lord, for your goodness. And I pray for the Christians that have been longtime Christians. Lord, may we walk in your truth. Help us not to be sucked into worldviews that are contrary and rebellious, but help us to follow you and your word. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.